podcast is part of the Pod Syndicate family. For more criminally compelling shows, articles, and conversations, head to wearepodsyndicate.com. In the mid-2000s, comic book movies were an interesting but precarious place to be if you were a movie studio looking for a hit. Big two comic book publishers, DC and Marvel, both had big properties in the game, but success-wise, they were poles apart. Through its ongoing movie deal with Warner Brothers, DC Comics had taken superhero cinema from the heady heights of 1978's Superman through to the disastrous lows of 2004's Catwoman. One year after that film, though, it would steady the ship somewhat thanks to Batman Begins, the first in Christopher Nolan's trilogy of Batman movies. And that film sought to reposition the Dark Knight as a gritty, more realistic action hero. Sadly, DC had failed to get people all that excited about Superman's return in 2006. When that film didn't impress financially or critically, it started to look instead at the darker, more grounded titles that it might be able to bring to the screen. 2005's Constantine had found moderate success, but following The Dark Knight in 2008 and Watchmen in 2009, DC and Warner found themselves in the position of being noted as a studio that was fostering a reputation for having the guts to try new, more daring things with their comic book adaptations. And creatively, it seemed like they were on something of an upswing. Well, at least for a while. Jonah here. I'm Colvin. Thinking you might need a... Cut him down! Brightest day. Blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's light! Just like DC, Marvel had a fair few heroes out on active movie duty by the mid-2000s too. And while he may have botched the big screen return of Superman... Brian Singer's successful and highly influential X-Men franchise was now into its third feature for 20th Century Fox by 2006. Elsewhere, Marvel characters like Blade, Punisher, Daredevil, Hulk, Fantastic Four, even Elektra had all led their own movies by 2007, and the third film in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy was breaking box office records all over the world. The problem was, while all of these films featured Marvel characters... They were being produced by studios that had been savvy enough to scoop up the related rights back when the publisher was either struggling financially or facing outright bankruptcy. Marvel was earning money from the success of New Line Cinema's Blade, Lionsgate's Punisher, Universal's Hulk, Sony's Spider-Man and Fox's X-Men and Fantastic Four. But the cash was small potatoes compared to what the studios themselves were taking to the bank. If Marvel was going to succeed in the movie business, it would need to either wrestle those movie rights back from New Line, Lionsgate, Universal, Sony and Fox, which was highly unlikely at the time, or come up with the cash itself to make something out of the characters it had left. Back in 2000, the publisher had attempted to get its own studio up and running through a deal with Artisan Entertainment, which aimed to bring its bank of remaining characters to life on film, television and even online platforms. The deal included a split on revenue, plus licensing and merchandising, and would focus on properties including Deadpool, 
Captain America, Ant-Man, The Punisher, Morbius, Man-Thing, Iron Fist and Power Pack. But when Lionsgate purchased Artisan in 2003, the agreement was put on hold, with just two movies, 2005's Man-Thing and 2008's Punisher Warzone, creeping out into the world quietly, and pretty tragically. Man-Thing was based on Marvel's mutant swamp creature, which bears more than a passing resemblance to DC's Swamp Thing, though no one is entirely sure which truly came first. The film was eventually premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel, and though it did get some international theatrical play, it was a complete disaster, and has been completely forgotten by time. Punisher Warzone fared only slightly better, getting both a domestic and international theatrical release, but only managed to scrape about a third of its $35 million budget back. Over time though, the film did pick up a bit of a following, and to this day often comes up in conversations about most accurate depictions of Marvel heroes. The city is under some kind of death threat. He said something big was going to happen. Somebody has to punish the corrupt. You're fighting a war. This is just the beginning. God be with you, Frank. Sometimes I'd like to get my hands on God. Punisher Warzone. But while it did struggle on film, Marvel's partnership with Lionsgate did lead to a fruitful period for animated movies. Between 2006 and 2011, Marvel Animated Features, as it was then known, put out eight direct-to-DVD features. Ultimate Avengers, Ultimate Avengers 2, The Invincible Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Next Avengers, Hulk vs, Planet Hulk and Thor Tales of Asgard earned over $43 million in the US alone and would ultimately evolve into the Marvel Animation subsidiary of Disney that we have today. But while all this was happening, what remained of the Artisan partnership had been allowed to lapse. Now this meant that Marvel now had the rights to make movies featuring a number of key characters, albeit just the ones it hadn't already sold off elsewhere. The bigger problem though is that while Marvel did have the belief in characters like Captain America and Ant-Man, which were largely unknown at the time, what it didn't have was the cash to do them justice on the big screen. And so the company approached Merrill Lynch and were able to secure $525 million of investment, which they used to buy back characters like Thor, Black Widow and Hulk, as well as put into what would be the first character to get his own Marvel Studios movie, Iron Man. Iron Man the character had featured in various animated shows over the years and had been passed around Hollywood for decades by the time 2008 rolled around. Originally picked up by Universal in 1990, that studio had planned to give the property a modest budget and put it in the hands of the late great Stuart Gordon, director of home video genre classics like Reanimator, From Beyond and Robot Jocks. And while we don't know it for sure, it seems like a pretty safe assumption that the lead role of Tony Stark slash Iron Man would have gone to Gordon regular Jeffrey Coombs. Now, as someone who was consuming Iron Man comics at about the same rate as he was watching Stuart Gordon movies back in the late 1980s and early 90s, I have to say there's a big part of me that wishes something had come from those plans. 
but sadly it wasn't to be. That attempt at getting Iron Man off the ground, so to speak, had failed, and the rights were sold on to 20th Century Fox in 1996. During the Fox years, it's widely reported that both Nicolas Cage and Tom Cruise had expressed an interest in playing Tony Stark, suggesting that, probably thanks to the success of Tim Burton's Batman films, that studio was ready to put a decent budget behind the character. A script was passed around that featured the part-man, part-mutant, part-robot MODOK as its main villain, and according to some questionable reports, Quentin Tarantino was being hotly tipped to direct. So again, that was a million miles away from what we ultimately got in 2008, but it would have been something damn interesting to see had it actually happened. With Fantastic Four, X-Men and Daredevil already keeping Fox busy though, the studio wasn't necessarily all that hungry for another expensive Marvel movie, and with no one even considering the idea that someday these properties might somehow interconnect, the studio offloaded Iron Man to New Line Cinema. New Line gave it their best shot, with a couple of different scripts and a few directors, including Joss Whedon, that were all approached to direct. But after six years of tinkering and trying to line up a director able to deliver the kind of success being seen with characters like Batman and Spider-Man elsewhere, New Line also gave up, which allowed Marvel to jump in and bring Tony Stark back to the family. Having served Marvel as a producer since 2000, overseeing X-Men, Spider-Man, Daredevil, Hulk, Fantastic Four, Punisher and yes, Man-Thing, Kevin Feige was installed as Marvel's president of production in 2006. In April of that year, Elf and Zathora director Jon Favreau was brought on to take the creative reins for Iron Man, and immediately set about casting the all-important role of Tony Stark. You ready, right? You ready? Okay, come on. You know the setup? Got any questions? Huh. He's got no questions. Look at him. Let's go. Come on. Let's read. Where is he? Where's Raphael? Where is he? Where is he? Um, uh, beat up on me all night. You want me to give up my partner? You can go spit. Quit acting like the good guy, jerk off. You got your partner killed. He was in over his head. You knew it. You may as well have pulled the trigger. You killed him. No, I, I didn't. I didn't kill him. He wanted in. Why? I didn't want him to come in, and he insisted. I said, you got to stay at home, but he doesn't listen to me. He's such a stupid son of a bitch. Uh, I killed him, didn't I? Oh, fuck. This is my <laughs> See, this is what I'm talking about. Old school methods. Downey Jr. was not a safe choice, nor was he a popular one. At 43 years old, many thought his best days were behind him. But having put in stellar performances in both Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and David Fincher's Zodiac, it was clear to Favreau and Feige that there was a twinkle in his eye that was perfect for their vision of Tony Stark. But even bigger than the risk being taken on Robert Downey Jr. was the financial risk that Marvel Studios was facing as a new independent outfit with no direct history of Hollywood success. With no capital to put against the $525 million it had secured from Merrill Lynch, Marvel had used its characters as an insurance policy. Now this meant that if Iron Man was a success, they'd have all the cash to invest in more movies. But it also meant that if they failed, they'd pretty much lose everything. But by July 2007, Marvel Studios was ready to show off the first footage of Iron Man at Hall H of Comic-Con. And it's fair to say the audience liked what they saw. Mr. Stark, you've been called the Da Vinci of our time. What do you say to that? Absolutely ridiculous. I don't paint. What do you say to that? 
you said your other nickname, the Merchant of Death. That's not Ben. They say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I prefer the weapon you only need to fire once. That's how Dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. To peace. Is it cool if I take a picture with you? Yes. It's very cool. I don't want to see this on your MySpace page. Please, no gang signs. No, throw it up. I'm kidding. You have till tomorrow to assemble my missile. I should be dead already. Unless it was for a reason. I just finally know what I have to do. That doesn't look like a missile. What are you building, Stark? I'm working on something big. For me, Iron Man was a hugely important movie. I've been a comic book reader since 10, 11 years old, and Iron Man was, without question, my guy. More so than Batman, more so than Superman, Spider-Man, or any other DC or Marvel property, he was the character I not only read the most, but collected the back issues of. To me, Tony Stark was kind of like Bruce Wayne, but without the stick up his arse. He was smart, attractive, and rich, but able to enjoy it. He partied hard and went through as many love interests as he did cool new tricked out Iron Man suits. I loved that he was a successful, powerful businessman, but also a kick-ass superhero outside of the office. Batman was cool, but he was lonely and obsessive and clearly some sort of depressed sociopath. Iron Man was a hero for the age of excess, and by the time 2008 came around, I'd argue that that was exactly the kind of hero that we needed. The X-Men movies had worked well, always felt a little bit embarrassed about being based on Marvel superheroes. Nolan's Batman films were great, but again they seemed desperate to try and avoid comic book conventions, to the point where sometimes they felt like they were being made through gritted teeth. And while Sony's Spider-Man had been more comic book accurate, by the time the third film had been released in 2007, Peter Parker's emotional turmoil and constant battle with himself had just become kind of exhausting. The Comic-Con trailer for Iron Man seemed to hint at something more celebratory, and key to that was Robert Downey Jr. I feel like you're driving me to court-martial. This is crazy. What did I do? I feel like you're going to pull over and snuff me. What, you're not allowed to talk? Hey, Forrest. We can talk, sir. Oh, I see. So it's personal? No, you intimidate them. Good God, you're a woman. 
I honestly, I couldn't call that. I mean, I'd apologize, but isn't that what we're going for here? I thought I'd use a soldier first. I'm an airman. But you have actually excellent bone structure there. I'm kind of having a hard time not looking at you now. Is that weird? <laughs> Come on, it's okay, laugh. Hey! Sir, I, I have a question to ask. Yes, please. Is it true you went 12 for 12 with last year's Maxim cover models? That is an excellent question. Yes and no. March and I had a scheduling conflict, but fortunately the Christmas cover was twins. Watching the first Iron Man film now, what strikes me is just how much Favreau lets Stark revel in being an asshole during that opening 15 minutes. From the way he speaks to the female soldier, to his behaviour in the casino when he should be on stage accepting an award, it makes it pretty clear that this is a guy who has it all and isn't afraid to either use it or abuse it. Take the way he deals with Christine Everhart, the reporter from Vanity Fair who accosts him outside the casino with some challenging questions about the conduct of his weapons company. He chooses to speak to her only when his driver, Happy, has confirmed that yes, she's hot, and then immediately talk down to her, calling her honey. And how does she respond? You ever lose an hour of sleep your whole life? Be prepared to lose a few with you. She immediately jumps into bed with him. Yes, it's ridiculous, and yes, it almost certainly wouldn't happen today. But here's why I'm glad it does. There are things about Tony Stark that, as a character, we automatically like. But there are also things about him that we aren't supposed to like. Favreau throws a couple of Bond references into the scene, the music and the shot of Everhart splayed across the bed. But the goal here is to help us will Tony Stark into changing for the better. We know we like him from the outset, again thanks to that vital Downey Jr. performance, but Stark's journey, both in this film and for the duration of his time in the MCU, is all about getting better. In this first film, he's atoning for the mistakes of Stark Enterprises and trying to make it a better company. Later, he'll be asked to atone for his father's mistakes to make his technology better. And by the end of Phase 1, he'll be challenged by someone his complete polar opposite to be a better hero. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that off, what are you? Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. I know guys with none of that worth 10 of you. I've seen the footage. The only thing you really fight for is yourself. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you. I think I would just cut the wire. Always a way out. You know, you may not be a threat, but you better stop pretending to be a hero. In 2012's The Avengers, the pivotal motivating moment that forges the team to act is the death of Agent Coulson. But for me, 2008's Iron Man pulls the same trick a little more effectively with the death of Yinsen, the man who saved Stark's life when he was captured in Afghanistan and helped him create the Mark I armour that helps him to escape. What Yinsen does is highlight Tony's weaknesses for him, to show him the error of his ways and give him a path to follow, a path towards getting better. In fact, you could argue that without Yinsen, there is no Stark 2.0. And with no Stark 2.0, there's really no MCU. He tells Stark that a rich man with no family is a man who has both everything and nothing. And in death, he sets a trajectory that echoes right through Tony Stark's Infinity Saga long character. Move with me, come on, we got a plan, we're going to stick to it. This was always the plan, Stark. Come on, you're going to go see your family, get him. My family's dead. I'm going to sit down now, Stark. It's okay. It's okay. I want this. 
Despite those echoes and familiar themes that continue on through the Marvel Studios movies, the most striking thing about re-watching Iron Man now is just how incredibly fresh it feels. Part of that is because it isn't burdened with the stakes and cosmic consequences of the MCU as we know it today, but beyond that it's just nice to go back and discover this character again, as indeed he is discovering himself and what he's capable of. One of the best examples of this is watching Tony build and test his rocket boots and repulsors ahead of the reveal of the Mark II armour, which is still my favourite Iron Man movie armour to date. There's a very pure joy in going back now to watch this man who we last saw destroying an intergalactic warlord using six elemental crystals that created all life in the universe, just about mastering the power of flight. Sir, there are still terabytes of calculations needed before an actual flight is a Jarvis, sometimes you gotta run. Before you can walk. Ready? In three, two, one. So as I've mentioned, some of the loudest echoes throughout the later films of the MCU started right here in 2008's Iron Man. Some of them are small, whereas some of them are much, much bigger, and they don't come much bigger than Tony's final line, I am Iron Man. Not only does this line continue to craft a character that you've seen grow in those smaller moments of the film, it hits reset on Stark's ego button, while also taking a hammer to his alter ego button. I read plenty of DC comics as a kid, but what always attracted me to Marvel was the strength of those alter egos. They always just seemed much more connected to the costumed heroes that formed the other half of the identity. When we see Batman or Superman on the big screen, how interested are we really in the Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent segments? Sure, there are actors, Christopher Reeves for one, who've done more with them, but actually what we really want to do is get to the hero stuff. The Batcave, the Batmobile, the Rogue Gallery or action set pieces like Superman stopping a school bus from falling off a bridge. Those action set pieces are essential to Marvel movies too, of course, but just like in the world of Marvel comics, get the characterization of the secret identity wrong, and they just don't seem to matter as much. On the flip side of that though, if you get it right, suddenly you find yourself thinking, hey, do you know what? Do we even need secret identities? I, 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 I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly, with this... Uh laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I've made, largely public. Yeah, okay. yeah. The truth is, I am Iron Man. Having Stark admit to being Iron Man in front of the world's media was bold, but more importantly, it was right on character and absolutely illustrated the confidence that Marvel had in its own characters. Marvel knew, and has always known, that alter egos aren't just vehicles to move the story along to the next action set piece. It's not to say that DC's secret identities are weak, it's just that, on the whole, Marvel gives its characters more to worry about, some sort of struggle to overcome. 
Tony Stark, the billionaire prodigy with a self-destructive ego. Peter Parker, the spider-powered student with teenage troubles. Steve Rogers, the super soldier with a broken heart. And Bruce Banner, the genius scientist with a universal distribution deal. I've got a problem. There are aspects of my personality that I can't control. See a shrink? It's a little bit more complicated than that. Bruce, trust me when I tell you I've heard them all. Not this one. After Marvel regained the rights to produce films featuring the Hulk in 2005, when a sequel to Ang Lee's 2003 take on the character failed to materialise, it immediately started to think about how the character might fit into its cinematic future. Unlike its other returning characters though, Marvel's Hulk production rights also included a first refusal option on distribution with Universal. But while a lot has been made of that deal in the past, with many suggesting it's why Marvel Studios has no solo Hulk films on the horizon, the truth is actually much simpler than that. The Universal distribution deal isn't all that different to the distribution deals that Marvel held with Paramount during Phase 1 of both the Iron Man movies, as well as Thor and Captain America. The real reason 2008's Louis Leterrier-directed Edward Norton starring The Incredible Hulk is the only solo Hulk movie in the MCU is that after two failed attempts to bring the character to life on screen, Marvel didn't really want to kill off the property with a third. Ang Lee's 2003 film failed to break the box office top 10 that year and was widely criticised for its special effects, story and style. 2008 MCU reboot sought to improve all that, but only really managed a similar response, both critically and financially. And it's not just that The Incredible Hulk didn't make money. Unfortunately, the lukewarm response to the film caused Marvel to panic and start looking for answers, which it seems they may have found in the casting of Ed Norton. So when the time came for an Avengers movie, the Hulk was redesigned and Bruce Banner was recast with Mark Ruffalo. Now, why Ed Norton wasn't asked back is the subject of much debate and discussion, with most of that around Norton's reputation for being difficult to work with, controlling, and particularly active behind the camera. But for me, that's never really sat right. Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige haven't spoke that much about it, certainly not in any direct way, but according to Norton, it was exactly the kind of collaborative, creative partnership that Marvel wanted him for. He said that when that creative direction changed, the time and money associated with the project caused him to back away and do other things, adding that what Feige had achieved was, without doubt, probably one of the best executions of a business plan in the history of the entertainment industry. What's far more interesting now, though, is what this means for the Banner Hulk character in The Incredible Hulk, in terms of how that affects the wider context of future MCU appearances. If you pick up the Marvel Cinematic Universe Phase 1 box set, you will get a copy of The Incredible Hulk, likewise on the first 10 years anniversary collection. But you won't find the film on Disney Plus in the Marvel Cinematic Universe section. And if you pick up the Infinity Saga Collector's Edition set, the film will once again be there, but the artwork on the box, well, that's going to be Mark Ruffalo's Hulk. So who is the definitive Marvel Cinematic Universe's Hulk? Well, at this point, you'd have to conclude that it's Ruffalo. After all, he's had five films to develop the character. But in hindsight, that just kind of makes Norton's interpretation more interesting. No, no, we've got to destroy it. Wait, what? All of it. Tonight, we're going to incinerate it. Is this the whole supply? What? We could get the Nobel for this. You don't understand the power of this thing. It is too dangerous. It cannot be controlled. Norton's banner is a man who has, in a way, turned his back on laboratory science and has tried to find a more natural solution to his problems, whether through experimenting with natural remedies or controlling his body with his mind. 
For the most part, he's a calm, pragmatic character, but he's also someone who is becoming increasingly desperate. But the thing is, that desperation isn't because he lives in fear of what's inside of him. When we pick up with Banner, he's gone 158 days without incident. This Banner has seen firsthand that science, for all of its benefits, can be mistreated and used for the wrong reasons. And it's those outside forces, military forces, that represent the biggest threat to him. The people who want to capture him and make use of his scientific creation as a weapon. With that in mind, it would have been pretty easy for Edward Norton's Bruce Banner to find a friend in Tony Stark, particularly after the events of Iron Man 2. Both Stark and Banner are men of science, men who want to use science for the benefit of mankind, but also men who know that there are bigger, global, military entities who would steal their science away from them in a heartbeat. Is it possible that this meeting of minds was the planned catalyst for the Avengers? Because if you think about it, it makes the otherwise illogical final scene of this film make a lot more sense. Stark. General. You always wear such nice suits. Touche. I hear you have an unusual problem. You should talk. You should listen. What if I told you we were putting a team together? Who's we? Leterrier and Norton's Hulk is definitely the MCU black sheep. The outsider that you kind of sense Feige probably wishes hadn't been made now. But I don't think it should be forgotten. It is a decent film, and all the more interesting for its existence on the periphery of the MCU. It is, unfortunately, weirdly over-reverential of the 1970s TV show, which almost certainly wouldn't happen if it was made again today, with music cues and moments paying direct homage to it, like the somewhat heavy-handed baton-passing cameo from that show's Hulk, Lou Ferrigno. Hey pal, get a delivery on five. I don't think you have anybody up here. Oh man. I'm gonna catch hell if I don't collect. You gotta let me try. See what? I got an extra meeting. Take it on the house. You are the man. God bless you, brother. But the one thing it doesn't carry forward is the idea of Bruce Banner as this running man or wandering saviour. Yes, it's touched upon very quickly in Ruffalo's first scene as Banner in The Avengers, but it could have been a very interesting way to take the character forward for a while before firing him off into space to become a gladiator on planet Sakaar. And in addition to the abandoned idea of the wandering saviour, there are so many other questions that the Incredible Hulk raises. What would Banner have been like had Norton stayed in the MCU? The chemistry between Norton and Stark and the other Avengers would have been very interesting, but it also would have been hugely, hugely different. The bumbling, awkward banner of Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron would have likely been more sharp and disagreeable as a character. The playful, childlike Hulk of Thor Ragnarok probably would have been a lot angrier and a lot more desperate to escape his captor. And then the eventual dude-bro Hulk of Avengers Endgame, would that have even existed? As I say, the Incredible Hulk does a lot right. It cleverly relegates the origin story to the opening credits, it opens with some fantastic location shooting in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, and it introduces us to a Hulk who is brutal and out of control when unleashed. The sequence on the college campus, for example, where Hulk stomps an army truck and then skewers it on a piece of jagged metal, at which point a body falls out of the side. In those sequences, look at the horror on the face of Liv Tyler's Betty Ross, or General Ross's face when he looks him dead in the eye in this scene. 
It's obvious that this Hulk was always intended to be something very feral and very violent, and once again you have to wonder how that might have worked out later on. Less impressive though is where the film ends up. Hulk vs. the Army is entertaining, Hulk vs. Emil Blonsky's prototype Captain America is fun, but Hulk vs. Spiky Hulk, or Abomination to give him his more ridiculously wedged in name, is just kind of boring. Yes, it's the same Marvel problem that I had no issue with in Iron Man. The hero fights a slightly bigger, angrier version of himself. And yes, it's probably what you might expect from a Hulk comic. But it does highlight how, beyond his duality and internal struggle, Hulk just seems to work better in a team-up. Could we pick up now where we left off? Mr. Stark, please. Yes, dear. Can I have your attention? Absolutely. Our priority here is to have you turn over the Iron Man weapon to the American people. Well, you can forget it. We're safe. America is secure. You want my property? You can't have it. But I did you a big favor. I have successfully privatized world peace. Through John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr., Marvel Studios had taken a character I loved and built on all of the things who made him who he was. Tony Stark was the genius businessman who knew how to build the perfect armour, but inside was always battling with his own past and personality. In Iron Man 2, they even looked to bring in some of my own favourite Stark storylines, Armour Wars and Demon in a Bottle, to bring in boardroom baddies and ruthless military men that would collide with Tony's egotism and potential for self-destruction. With the first film taking the incredibly bold step of having Tony Stark admit to the world that he was the man behind the Iron Man mask, the sequel had set itself a potentially interesting problem to deal with. But in the very moment we're reunited with Stark here, it is abundantly clear why this works so well. Why on earth would we think even for a moment that Tony Stark would create something as awesome as the Iron Man armour, and then not tell the world that it was him piloting it? Adulation, rock star status, this is all his dream come true. And instead of opening delicately on how he's coping with life now the world knows his secret, we find Stark quite literally diving headfirst into the rock star role on stage at the centre of the Stark Expo in full Mark IV armour, as he's revealed to thousands of screaming fans, surrounded by dancing girls, fireworks and the sounds of ACDC's shoot to thrill. Which begs the question, has our hero actually learned anything since we last saw him? Well, yes, to a degree. He's learned to trust his instincts, to fight for what's right, to fight for what's his, and protect his company and property from anyone who might want to exploit it. He's also learned how to truly use his technology for good, but should we really have expected that to have humbled him in any way? It's a high-tech prosthesis. <laughs> that is, that is, that's actually the most apt description I could make of it. It's a weapon. It's a weapon, Mr. Stark. I hate Please, to if your priority was actually the, the well-being... No, my priority is to get the Iron Man weapon turned over to the people of the United States of America. Well, you can forget it. I am Iron Man. The suit and I are one. To turn over the Iron Man suit would be to turn over myself, which is tantamount to indentured servitude or prostitution, depending on what state you're in. You can't have it. Uh, look, I I'm no uh, expert. In prostitution, of course not. You're a senator. Come on! While the Stark of Iron Man 2 is, like many of the critiques of the film, a bigger, brasher, and arguably more garish version of what came before, it's basically all a front for what the film is really about, which is in many ways a simple reversal of the first movie. Iron Man 2 is all about control, or more specifically the loss of it and what that does to someone with an ego the size of Tony Stark's. If the last film was about Tony taking control of his life, taking control of his destiny and his company and using all of that to build something for the future, this film is about stripping all of that away. 
Firstly, there's the loss of control over his physical well-being. The technology Tony developed with the help of Jensen to keep him alive is now slowly killing him. And with so many other things clouding his focus, he simply can't find a way to fix it. But of course, his ego wouldn't allow him to admit that to anyone. Blood toxicity, 24%. It appears that the continued use of the Iron Man suit is accelerating your condition. Another core has been depleted. God, they're running out quick. I have run simulations on every known element, and none can serve as a viable replacement for the Palladium core. You are running out of both time and options. Unfortunately, the device that's keeping you alive is also killing you. Miss Potts is approaching. I recommend that you inform her of... And Stark's tendency towards self-destruction isn't helping either. Not only is he drinking more, but that troublesome ego of his is allowing him to hide behind his accomplishments and create enough of a circus, a circus that becomes manifest in the lost leading Stark Expo, to further cloud his judgement and ability to move forward. So Tony is losing control of both his physical and mental well-being, but he's also losing control of his company. Not because of bad decisions or business challenges he can't cope with, but just because he's become completely disinterested in it. So much so that he wants to offload responsibility for that to Pepper Potts. But in doing so, you get a sense that Tony is actually just trying to come up for air, to create a little bit more space to breathe and think about the more pressing matters on his mind. Okay, fine. My point is, we have already awarded contracts yeah. to the wind farm people. Don't say wind farm, and I'm already feeling gassy. And to the plastic plantation treat, which was yeah. your idea, by the way. Those people right. are on payroll, Everything was and my you idea. won't make a decision. I don't care about the liberal agenda anymore. It's boring, boring. I'm giving you a boring word. You do it. I do what? Excellent idea. I just figured this out. You run the company. Yeah. Pepper needs you to I'm run the company. I'm trying to run the company. Well, stop trying you to do it and do it. I'm not asking you to try to do it. I'm asking you to physically do it. I need you to do it. I am Pepper, trying to do it. You're not listening to me. No, I'm trying to make you CEO. Me. Why won't you let me? Have you been drinking? And yes, he has been drinking, because drinking gives him the space to think. Space that he should probably be using to dedicate to solving the problem of his own impending death. Unfortunately, with no control over his body, his mind, his company or his ego, all Tony really has left is his name and his legacy, and it doesn't take long for someone to come along and try to take that away too. Having given in to his self-destructive side, Tony manages to use some of that free time he now has from handing Stark Enterprises over to jump into an F1 car at the Monaco Grand Prix, and it's here that he meets Anton Vanko, the man who claims that the very throne upon which Stark sits is built on lies. When they clash at the racetrack, Tony doesn't necessarily have the upper hand, and Vanko lands the first few blows even after Iron Man has had time to strike a suitable superhero pose. But it's in the moments after this that Vanko makes his true intentions known. This isn't about destroying Iron Man, it's about stripping away Tony's control over his own name and his own legacy. You come from a family of thieves and butchers. And now, like all guilty men, you try to rewrite your own history. And you forget all the lives the Stark family has destroyed. Speaking of thieves, where did you get this design? My father, Anton Vanko. Well, I never heard of him. My father is the reason you're alive. 
reason I'm alive is because you had a shot, you took it, you missed. Did I? If you can make God bleed, then people will cease to believe in him. And they will be blood in the water. And the sharks will come. The truth, all I have to do is sit here and watch as the world will consume you. So as Tony slips further and further towards the brink, he takes comfort in that one thing he has left, his rock star persona, Iron Man. And it's while embarrassing himself later, while drinking and using the suit to impress a room full of groupies, that his best friend Rhodey comes along to stage an intervention. Now, one of the things that originally bothered me about this scene was that after the pair have thrown each other round a bit, Rhodey zooms off in the Mark II armour and takes it to the military where he beefs it up with weapons to become War Machine. More specifically though, Tony lets him. But if you can hear beyond the rather obvious din of Daft Punk's robots rock, the conversation between these two best friends reveals everything you need to know. Rhodey wants to find another way, but all Tony wants is for him to take the responsibility and the suit away from him. Put your hand down. You think you got what it takes to wear that suit? We don't have to do this, Tony. You want to be the war machine? Take your shot. Put it down. You gonna take a shot? Put it down! No! Drop it, Tony! Take it! And in fact, it was only on this viewing, which I'm ashamed to say, that the penny actually dropped for me. This is actually Jon Favreau referencing one of my all-time favourite Iron Man covers, 1983's issue 169 of Iron Man, which sees a drunk and desperate Tony Stark reach out to his buddy James Rhodes while pleading, I can't handle it anymore, you be Iron Man. You've been very busy. You made your girl your CEO, you're giving away all your stuff. You, you let your friend fly away with your suit. Now, if I didn't know better... You don't know better. I didn't give it to him. He took it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? No, he took it? You're Iron Man and he just took it? The little brother walked in there, kicked your ass, and took your suit. Is that possible? Well, according to Mr. Stark's database security guidelines, there are redundancies to prevent unauthorized usage. With all that responsibility and control finally stripped away, Stark finds himself at his lowest point, and Nick Fury steps in to give him a moment of clarity and a handy link to his past that helps him create a new version of the arc reactor that saves his life. For me, this is still one of the weaker elements, pun intended, of Iron Man 2, but the way Tony taps into his legacy to find the solution kind of makes sense. I don't think it's handled all that well, but at least it shows our hero is growing up a little bit, just in time for the impending Avengers adventure. The biggest criticisms directed at Iron Man 2, of course, are that it tries to do too much and introduce too many new characters and ideas to help set up the wider MCU. There may be some truth to that, but in terms of how it delves deeper into who Tony Stark is as a person, to expose his weaknesses and allow him to grow, while also defying them for use in later movies, it is 100% effective. It is, on the whole, the story of a man with a god complex, who is reminded that in fact, he is just a man. Because as we all know, gods have no place on Earth. So, we found it. Marvel had one successful and fully formed Avenger out in the field in Iron Man, but with questions about the future of the Hulk, they needed another big hitter if they were going to realise their plans to have a big team-up movie in the future. Nick Fury and Black Widow seemed like a kind of support act for Tony Stark at this point, so it was important for the next character to be a major player, but something different to Stark and his new friends in S.H.I.E.L.D. And they don't get much more different than Thor. 
The studio had made it clear they were willing to take a gamble with the whole Iron Man project, but with two massively successful films setting up a lucrative solo franchise, there was still a lot to lose if they messed it up. A god with a large magic hammer who's first in line to the throw of a distant cosmic kingdom was a huge leap. But once again, Marvel showed that it had the confidence in its characters and put $150 million into bringing Thor to life, with Shakespeare-loving thespian and director Sir Kenneth Branagh at the helm. With two series of Mark Millar and Brian Hitch's The Ultimates under my belt, though, I must admit I shared some of that confidence. Ultimate Thor was a simplified and in many ways more believable version of the character than previous incarnations from the Avengers comics that I grew up with. First of all, he didn't have an alter ego, which was something Marvel was clearly comfortable with in its cinematic universe. But as a character, he was also somehow a lot wilder. He was intense, insanely powerful and deeply political in his views. And yet at the same time, he was sort of soft-edged and funny. He was a close ally and friend to Tony Stark, so it seemed like there was an easy setup there too. But for me, one of the most attractive things about Ultimate Thor for Marvel Studios in terms of dealing with his god status is how Miller dealt with the backstory. In the Ultimates, Thor is a psychiatric nurse who had a mental breakdown when he realised he was, in fact, the God of Thunder. And then the comics have a great deal of fun with the idea that his claims are kind of ridiculous. So what better way for Marvel Studios to introduce Thor than have him as this big guy with big powers and an even bigger backstory who people think is probably just a bit of a nutjob. Think about it. You wouldn't even need to show all that cosmic craziness. The golden halls of Asgard and its ruling gods, the mythical, magical world of enchanted weapons. You could just sidestep it completely. Thor, Odinson, my heir, my firstborn, so long entrusted with the mighty hammer Mjolnir, forged in the heart of a dying star. Its power has no equal. Thankfully though, Marvel wasn't returning any of my calls, and what we got instead was the whole shebang. After all, I suppose if you're going to pump $150 million into an action movie about Thor, and you're going to get Kenneth Branagh to direct it, you're probably going to want to see some myth and magic. Daniel Craig, Channing Tatum, Charlie Hunnam, Alexander Skarsgård, Joel Kinnaman, and even Tom Hiddleston, who would later be cast as Loki, were all considered for the lead role, but Marvel settled on an Australian TV actor whose only major big screen appearance was in flashback as Captain James T. Kirk's father in J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek reboot. And, aside from the decision to bleach his eyebrows in the first film, it was the right move. As we've seen now in later films, Chris Hemsworth has truly made the role his own, not only establishing the character as someone who you believe in and care about, but someone who you genuinely love to spend time with. Now, of course, many people will point to how tonally different those later appearances are, and how Thor Ragnarok, the third solo movie for the character, set a much more comedic template that Hemsworth has now run with. And yes, the version of Thor that we have now is somewhat different, but I don't feel like it's a complete reinvention. This drink, I like it. I know, it's great, right? Another! This first Thor film is, after all, a fish-out-of-water adventure. And that not only lends itself to comedy, but forces Thor to be on the back foot a lot of the time. While he's on Earth, Thor is having to adjust to the circumstances around him, and only reverts to his bigger Asgardian personality from time to time. That said, there is a seriousness about him too, which is difficult to ignore. In fact, during the opening 30 minutes of the film, which is pretty much all set on Asgard before Thor is banished to Earth by his father, we see a lot more of that side of him. This is Thor the warrior, the son of a king who has known only battle and excess his entire life. 
This is the Thor that fights, drinks, eats, presumably fucks, and then goes back to fighting again. He may be a god, but in many ways he's just a child trapped in a god's body. And there we have Thor's problem. Just like Stark before him, this is a hero with a lesson to learn. Thor has the physical tools, but not the mental ones. He understands war and victory, but he doesn't appreciate the pain and suffering that go along with it. He can lead an army, but can he lead a people? And when he's challenged on it, he can't help but revert to his childish side, screaming back at the authority that wants to stop him from trusting his own underdeveloped instincts. If the old ways are done, you'd stand giving speeches while Asgard falls. You are a vain, greedy, cruel boy! And you are an old man and a fool! One Thor is on Earth, though, I think the film really benefits. We've lived with the angry, serious, conceited Thor for long enough, so having him on Earth allows for at least a little light-heartedness. But while the tone is lighter, the message is still that Thor needs to learn a valuable lesson, which will start by having everything stripped away from him. He's on an unfamiliar planet, surrounded by people he doesn't know, and even when he does find his hammer, he discovers he's no longer worthy of lifting it. Needless to say, Thor learns his lesson and is restored to all his former glory, complete with Mjolnir in hand, when he chooses to offer himself as a sacrifice to save the people of Earth from the destroyer that Loki has sent. So who is that version of Thor? The version that we will carry forward into the Avengers? Well, he still has a childlike innocence about him, but the petulance and anger has been replaced by empathy and understanding. As Odin has intended, spending time with the humans taught all these things to Thor, but you have to say that actually there's one human in particular that he's been unable to take his eyes off the whole time he's been there. It's over. No, it's not over. Alina, you're safe. You're safe. It's over. And I mention this because you can't really underestimate the importance of Jane Foster in this first film. More so than Earth, than the handful of people he's met during his time here, she's almost entirely responsible for Thor's growth and completion. The love story at the heart of this film is pretty huge, and the chemistry between Portman and Hemsworth makes it feel genuinely urgent. You believe that they are just immediately besotted with one another, and that as soon as one of them makes a move, things are going to get pretty hot and pretty heavy pretty damn quickly. Would you like to see the bridge we spoke of? Uh, sure. <laughs> Finishing with a very definitive, confident statement of Thor will return in the Avengers and a post credit scene that gives us our first look at the Tesseract, an important item for Captain America, the Avengers and the whole Infinity Saga, the MCU felt like it was really picking up speed at this point. Iron Man, Hulk and Thor had all had solo adventures that not only established their origins and their powers, but more importantly, the strengths and weaknesses of their personalities. And hot on their heels was another hero. Only this time, it wasn't his personality that needed work. Our goal is to create a new breed of super soldier. Are you ready? Is it too late to go to the bathroom? How do you feel? Taller. On July 22nd, you can discover... What do you think? I think it works. The Hero Within. What made you so special? Nothing. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. Captain America. The Avengers had a head in Stark and plenty of muscle in both Thor and Hulk, but what the team was missing more than anything else was a heart. And for that, it would be reliant on another very difficult to realise character, Captain America. But while Cap might have been a tricky sell, it was for different reasons than those it had faced with the God of Thunder. Like Thor, Captain America was someone that people could probably visually pick out of a superhero lineup. But as a character, he wasn't particularly well known. 
The bigger struggle with Cap wasn't how outlandish his backstory was, though. It was how honest and earnest he was as a character. The fact that he was so unashamedly virtuous. Another issue was that costume. To most people, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy scout draped in the stars and stripes going about calling himself Captain America, it just seemed like too much. Messages of hope and possibility weren't misplaced under an Obama presidency that had just eliminated the architect of 9-11, but America was still a pretty unpopular country across the world. Those of us who'd read Captain America comics, though, knew he wasn't a symbol of patriarchy or authority, but someone who challenged those systems and represented the common man. Someone who wasn't scared to stand up to bullies of any size and say no. <coughs> Give up, do you? I'm gonna do this all day. Although Iron Man 2 is often the film blamed for being the most concerned with firing up the initial phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's actually Captain America that has the most immediate link. Introduced briefly in the Thor post-credits, the Tesseract becomes the first of a series of MCU MacGuffins, this time being pursued by Hydra head Honcho and Red Skull Johann Schmidt and his scientist sidekick Arnim Zola. The Tesseract was the jewel of Odin's treasure room. It is not something one buries. But I think it is close, yes. Schmidt's plan to tap into the power of the Tesseract to not just win World War II, but usurp Hitler and the Nazis, means that we've got the perfect foil for a hero. As not only will Cap be up against bullies, he'll be up against the bullies that bully the bullies. But as much of a MacGuffin as the Tesseract, or Space Stone as we will come to know it, might be, it is used pretty sparingly. And in fact, you kind of get the sense that Hydra would have been a problem that needed to be dealt with at some point anyway. Essentially though, by establishing Hydra, a threat that's bigger than the Nazis, we create the need for a hero that's also bigger than reality. Look, I know you don't think I can do this. This isn't a back alley, Steve. It's war. I know it's a war. You oh, have to why are you so keen to war. fight? There's so many important jobs. What do you want me to do? Collect scrap metal yes. in my little red wagon? Why not? I'm not going to sit in the factory, Bucky. Bucky, come on. There are men laying down their lives. I got no right to do any less than them. That's what you don't understand. This isn't about me. Right. Because you got nothing to prove. What motivates Steve Rogers is something personal and woven into the fiber of his very being. He believes the Nazis are bullies, and that bullies should be stopped, and that no matter who you are, you should never back down. The global military effort to defend against the Nazis reflects all of these values, and the propaganda machine behind it is tailor-made for him, even if the uniforms aren't. But despite his size, Steve is committed to doing the right thing, for standing up for what's right, no matter the cost to himself whether that's getting caught falsifying his enlistment form or actually laying down his life for the cause. Where are you from? Queens, 73rd Street and Utopia Parkway. Before that, Germany. This troubles you? No. Where are you from, Mr. Rogers? Hmm? Is it New Haven or Paramos? Five exams in five different cities. That might not be the right file. No, it's not the exams I'm interested in. It's the five tries. But you didn't answer my question. 
do you want to kill Nazis? Is this a test? Yes. I don't want to kill anyone. I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. And it's here we start to see a slightly different take on what has by now become the Marvel Cinematic Universe formula. In Tony Stark, we were introduced to a man mentally capable of engineering a high-tech suit of armour and physically capable of piloting it, but a man who also initially lacks the moral fortitude to be a hero. In Thor, we were introduced to a mighty warrior prince, able to lay waste to fields of enemies, but who is also someone that lacks the empathy and emotional maturity to be a hero. Steve Rogers, on the other hand, is emotionally complete. Instead of dedicating the first act of his origin story to all the things that are wrong with his personality, we're learning about his inherent goodness, the heroic traits he already has. It's only a subtle difference, simply switching emotional completion for physical completion, but in many ways it helps us root for Steve more. We can't wait to see him get the physical attributes that both Stark and Thor have and take for granted, because we know he has the inner heroism to use them wisely. By giving the audience someone they can believe in from the start, someone they can root for and want to be given the opportunity to become a superhero, Captain America the First Avenger becomes arguably a more effective origin story. And in the sequence immediately following Steve's transformation, we're shown exactly why we were right to believe in him. When he chases down a Hydra agent using his super speed, leaping across cars, using a car door as a shield, and swimming after a submarine. At this point, we know he's superpowered, but it's only when Steve has the perpetrator in his hands that he seems to realise. As he looks down to acknowledge his body, you get the sense that his inherent determination and spirit was just as responsible for all this as his new abilities. With all due respect to the Colonel, I think we may be missing the point. I've seen you in action, Steve. More importantly, the country's seen it. Paper. The enlistment lines have been around the block since your picture hit the newsstands. You don't take a soldier, a symbol like that, and hide him in a lab. Son, do you want to serve your country on the most important battlefield of the war? Sir, that's all I want. Then congratulations. You just got promoted. Of course, establishing Steve's heroism is one thing, dressing him in the Stars and Stripes and calling him Captain America is something else. So having him become part of the US war propaganda machine we know that he's already engaged with makes absolute sense. Steve wants to serve his country however he can, but as a soldier. The military may see him as an experiment, but at least as a symbol of America's military might, he might be able to help the soldiers he so looks up to. More importantly though, by putting Rogers in a more comically comic book accurate version of the original suit and having him prance around on stage as part of a show that's designed to appeal to kids and encourage overt patriotism, director Joe Johnson diffuses the potential for the red, white and blue suit to seem ridiculous later. In fact, the whole circumstances around having Cap in the suit, helmet and shield when he goes to look for Bucky and rescue the captured soldiers of the 107th is brilliantly done. And this sequence, which climaxes with Rogers walking back into the compound with the rescue POWs behind him, is a genuinely powerful hero moment that sets the tone perfectly for what comes next. Some of these men need medical attention. I'd like to surrender myself for disciplinary action. 
That won't be necessary. Yes, sir. As I recall, my biggest complaint about Captain America the First Avenger back in 2011 was that I wanted to see a little more action in the middle section where we get to see Captain America proper for the first time, instead of the very quick montage that we do get. Watching it again today, I'd still say that's the case, but actually the action set pieces that follow are probably more important anyway, certainly in terms of characterising not just Steve Rogers but Captain America. These sequences are more about Cap leading the Howling Commandos and ensuring that the team has the physical and emotional support to do what they do best, which when you consider the next movie on the docket for the MCU, makes a lot more sense. The one thing I will say though is that of all the MCU films I've rewatched for this podcast, Captain America the First Avenger is by far the one I've enjoyed the most. And the reason for that is just how much of a sense of character it gives to its lead, and how important all of that is in the films that follow. Look, I'm sorry about that little show back there, but we thought it best to break it to you slowly. Break what? You've been asleep, Cap. For almost 70 years. You gonna be okay? Yeah. Yeah, I just... I had a date. The key challenge for 2012's The Avengers would be bringing Captain America together with Iron Man, Thor, Black Widow, Hawkeye and a brand new Hulk. Not to mention Nick Fury, Loki, Agent Coulson, Dr. Eric Selvig and a new character in Maria Hill. All in a story that was tonally and narratively balanced. The film would need to reintroduce the characters we now knew by reminding us where they were, both physically and emotionally, and then find a way to connect and have them serve a common goal. In addition, it would need to let each character grow and learn to play in this new team dynamic, while also playing to their individual strengths. It would also need to be entertaining enough to reward fans of the comics and film series to date, while playing to the wider, more general cinema-going audience who might just have been curious about the cinematic spectacle of it all. And honestly, I cannot stress enough how in awe I am of how this film managed to do all of these things so successfully. We're now so used to seeing massive Marvel events on the screen featuring tons of characters that the Avengers actually seem small by comparison. This film is an absolute masterclass in ensemble storytelling, which manages to use both existing characters effectively and establish relationships and ideas that will be carried forward in future films. It's a film that changed the course of modern cinema, and I wouldn't usually say this kind of thing, but anyone who disagrees with that is just kind of wrong. But aside from the practical achievements of Marvel's The Avengers, there's also the simple fact that here we are, eight years, and many, many rewatches later, and it still just absolutely thrills me. What do we do? We get ready. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people. So when we needed them, they could fight the battles that we never could. Gentlemen, what are you prepared to do? 
So where is everyone in this film? And how does that relate to their characterization in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it to date? Well, we'll start with the architect of the Avengers himself, Nick Fury. Up until this point, we've come to know Fury as a pretty accurate reflection of his character in the comics, or at least the Ultimates version of that character. He's a man who has a plan, a man who is connected and knows things. He's someone with secrets who works closely with powerful people, whether that power be physical or political, and he usually has all the answers. But when we pick up with Fury here, he's on the back foot. He's been investigating the Tesseract for some time, and despite throwing all sorts of resources at it, he hasn't been able to get those answers. The Tesseract represents something outside of Fury's control, something no military science, government initiative, or SHIELD protocol can comprehend or vitally protect against. I need you to make sure the Phase 2 prototypes are shipped out. Sir, is that really a priority right now? Until such time as the world ends, we will act as though it intends to spin on. Next up, let's talk about the Avenger we probably know least about at this point, Hawkeye. All we know for sure is that he's observant, compassionate, and that he follows orders. But actually, all of those traits are used to show us something broader about who he is. In this film, Hawkeye is the everyman. He's military-minded, but with more working-class roots that allow him a different perspective. He spends his life viewing things from a distance, so he seems to understand the bigger picture. I gave you this detail so you could keep a close eye on things. Well, I see better from a distance. Have you seen anything that might set this thing off? Doctors, it's spiking again. No one's come or gone. This oven's clean. No contacts, no I am. If there's any tampering, sir, it wasn't at this end. At this end? Yeah, the cube is a doorway to the other end of space, right? Doors open from both sides. When last we saw Loki, he was bitter, angry and alone, having managed to isolate himself from his adoptive family and Asgard, as a result of not only his own manipulative, power-hungry persona, but also having learned that he's been lied to his entire life about who he is as a person. More importantly though, he was also tumbling into the abyss of space, which gave him plenty of time to stew in all that anger and resentment so he could come back here even more twisted, maniacal, entitled, and hell-bent on power and revenge. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. Loki, brother of Thor. We have no quarrel with your people. An ant has no quarrel with a boot. We're already used to the idea of Black Widow as a smart, strong, and highly trained spy, and Iron Man 2 taught us that she knows how to use her appearance to her advantage, while establishing trust with those she's been sought to engage with in the field. Here we see her doing that in some sort of staged captivity situation, which is played for laughs and used to reinforce just how good she is at her job, but it's the way those skills are then used to bring in Bruce Banner that makes things more interesting. In later films, this ability to empathise with people becomes almost maternal within the group. But here it's simply that she understands people and acknowledges their needs, either to help them, help herself, or sometimes both. We never lost you, Doctor. We've kept our distance. Even helped keep some other interested parties off your scent. Why? Nick Fury seems to trust you. But now we need you to come in. What if I say no? I'll persuade you. And what if the other guy says no? You've been more than a year without an incident. I don't think you want to break that streak. When Natasha finds Bruce Banner, he's doing well. As she points out, he's not had an incident in over a year and has turned his attention to other things. 
He's been the wandering saviour of the original TV series that Ed Norton's Hulk hinted at, just off-screen and never to be referenced again. And that's perhaps because at this point in his life, helping other people is the only thing he has to live for, the only thing to distract him from the life that he's had taken away from him. Likewise, Steve Rogers, recently thawed from the ice that kept him alive but unconscious for almost 70 years, is a man who's lost the life he once had. He's alone, frustrated and hidden from the world, trying to understand his place in it. As it stands, he has no purpose, no enemy, no cause, no bully or oppressive regime to fight. So the possibility of one, one that has the power to enslave the human race, is as important for him as he is for humanity. Uh, we made some modifications to the uniform. I had a little design input. The uniform? Aren't the stars and stripes a little... old-fashioned? Everything that's happening, the things that are about to come to light, people might just need a little old-fashioned. And when it comes to the character we probably know best, we find him in a much more positive state of mind. Tony Stark seems to have put his problems behind him, he's in a committed relationship with Pepper Potts, and has been challenging his idle hands back into clean energy, something he'd experimented with before with the arc reactor. That said, you also get a sense that he's kind of hiding something, like his ego has taken a little bit of a hit and he's decided just to retreat into himself a little bit. He's clearly trying to avoid being pulled into anything S.H.I.E.L.D. related, but is that perhaps because S.H.I.E.L.D. has rejected him and that's damaged his fragile ego? The Avengers initiative was scrapped, I thought, and I didn't even qualify. I didn't know that either. Yeah, apparently I'm volatile, self-obsessed, don't play well with others. That I did know. This isn't about personality profiles anymore. Whatever. For some of the Avengers, their characteristics are more defined or reinforced through their meetings or interactions with others. And one particularly interesting meeting is aboard the helicarrier where Bruce Banner meets Steve Rogers. Banner is clearly taken with Rogers, even briefly looking him up and down as if impressed with his size and physique, which is obviously a somewhat subtle joke. But at the same time, he's also worried about what Rogers knows about him. Thankfully, Rogers is able to switch on a little bit of that Captain America magic to let his new teammate know that he's someone that he can trust, while reminding us, the audience, of his impeccable leadership skills. Dr. Banner. Oh, yeah, hi. They told me you'd be coming. Word is you can find the cube. Is that the only word on me? Only word I care about. But the character probably best defined by his relationships with others, or least defined, depending on which way you look at it, is Thor, who is immediately thrown up against four of our already established characters. With Loki, Thor appears emotional, frustrated, even nostalgic. He doesn't want to kill his brother, he wants to give him the opportunity to repent and come home. But in trying to have Loki recognise his weaknesses and inadequacies as a leader, something he learned about himself in his own solo film, all Thor does is help define Loki's journey. It's not just that Loki wants power, he wants to prove to his estranged family, Thor included, that they were all wrong about him and that he is a leader. After all, why else would he choose Earth? We were raised together. We played together. We fought together. Do you remember none of that? I remember a shadow. Living in the shade of your greatness. I remember you tossing me into an abyss. I who was and should be king. So you take the world I love as recompense for your imagined slights. No, the earth is under my protection, Loki. <laughs> and you're doing a marvellous job with that. When Thor meets two of his main Avengers teammates for the first time, it's not as Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, but Iron Man and Captain America. 
and the purpose is not to help define any of the characters further, but emphasise the power of the team dynamic. The message from the battle that ensues between the three men is that they all have power, but together they're stronger. Power at 400% capacity. How about that? When it comes to how those relationships and personalities are used across the film itself though, for me there are really three key moments. The first of these is the scene that I hinted at earlier aboard the Helicarrier, in which the team is gathered around Loki's scepter to discuss the true intentions of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is where a whole host of home truths comes spilling right out. The suggestion seems to be that Loki's scepter, which houses the Mind Stone, is responsible for all that is being said, but every single comment made reflects the specific concerns, suspicions, and character flaws of each individual Avenger. Speak of control, yet you caught chaos. This is MO, isn't it? I mean, what are we, a team? No, 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 we're a chemical mixture that makes chaos. We're... We're a time bomb. Banner's default setting in this scene is to immediately call out S.H.I.E.L.D. for being exactly the kind of manipulative military machine that he knows, the kind that would use power beyond its understanding as a weapon, just like they wanted to do with Hulk. And when he complains about the potentially volatile nature of those people in the room, he's really talking about his own darker and more destructive side. I was wrong, Director. The world hasn't changed a bit. Did you know about this? You want to think about removing yourself from this environment, Doctor? <laughs> I was in Calcutta. I was pretty well removed. Loki is manipulating you. And you've been doing what exactly? You didn't come here because I bat my eyelashes at you. Yes, and I'm not leaving because suddenly you get a little twitchy. I'd like to know why S.H.I.E.L.D. is using the Tesseract to build weapons of mass destruction. As Banner continues to work himself up, Romanoff reveals just how scared she is of him, asking him to consider stepping away from the scene. It's something that was touched upon earlier when the pair first met, but you get the sense that she sees something genuinely dangerous in him. One reading of this fear is that Romanoff grew up under intense patriarchal control, and that Banner's potentially explosive side represents abusive masculinity. When Fury shows his hand in the scene, it's much more about his inability to control things using his usual military methods. As mentioned earlier, he's seen that the world is becoming a more dangerous place and he has no idea how best to deal with it. He doesn't have the answers and is responding to this new reality however he can. Last year, Earth had a visitor from another planet who had a grudge match that leveled a small town. We learned that not only are we not alone, but we are hopelessly, hilariously outgunned. My people want nothing but peace with your planet. But you're not the only people out there, are you? And you're not the only threat. The world's filling up with people who can't be matched. They can't be controlled. Like you controlled the cube? Your work with the Tesseract is what drew Loki to it, and his allies. It is a signal to all the realms that the Earth is ready for a higher form of war. For Thor, though, Fury just isn't equipped to protect the Earth. He believes he is the only one strong enough to handle the Asgardian and cosmic elements that threaten to throw the planet into chaos. But one of the most revealing pieces of dialogue in the scene is between Steve Rogers and Tony Stark, which establishes a real deep-seeded personality conflict between the two men that will ultimately forge the most fractious and interesting friendship in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that off, what are you? Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. I know guys with none of that worth 10 of you. I've seen the footage. The only thing you really fight for is yourself. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you. I think I would just cut the wire. Always a way out. 
You know, you may not be a threat, but you better stop pretending to be a hero. A hero? Like you? You're a laboratory experiment, Rogers. Everything special about you came out of a bottle. For the duration of the film up until this point, Stark has been needling pretty much every single other character around him. Agent Coulson, Nick Fury, Thor, Natasha Romanoff, even Bruce Banner, a man he clearly respects, likes and wants to spend time with, is someone he just can't help poking. Well, I promise a stress-free environment, no tension, no surprises. Ow! Stark keeps everyone at arm's length. And why wouldn't he? The closest friends he's had at this point have been Obadiah Stane, the man who tried to have him killed so he could steal his company, James Rhodes, the man who sold him out in court and then stole his technology to give to the military, and Happy Hogan, a man he pays to verbally abuse. But in a few films' time, we'll see just how much Tony truly values Cap. You know I wouldn't do this if I had any other choice. But he's my friend. So was I. Now in isolation, that moment might not ring 100% true, but it does play back directly into the scene around the Scepter. These men may have been at each other's throats since day one, but to Tony Stark, that's just what friendship looks like. As someone who, in some respects, was created by his father Howard, Tony sees Steve almost like a brother that he never had, but one that he would have likely fought with on a daily basis had they actually grown up together. For Steve, though, the friendship with Tony is built upon his actions on the battlefield. It is, again, a brotherhood, but more the kind of brotherhood one might experience with other soldiers fighting side by side in the trenches against a common enemy. And in this exchange, Steve sets up all the things he thinks he knows about Tony that stand in opposition to his own beliefs. But ultimately, these will be the things that earn Tony his love and respect, both now and in future films. The second moment in the film that has major character repercussions is the death of Agent Coulson, which for many reasons has always been slightly controversial. Aside from the fact his death ultimately meant nothing after his character was resurrected to star in the spin-off series Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., there is the question of why he would be such an effective motivator for these people beyond what already exists. To Stark, Coulson was a nice guy he'd known for a while, but to Rogers he was a fan that he met just hours ago. To Thor he was an ally that he'd encountered on his one visit to Earth, and to Romanoff he was at best a work colleague. To Bruce Banner he was, well, absolutely no one at all. But actually the weight given to Agent Coulson's death says nothing about his relationships with any of the Avengers, because it isn't about them. It's about us. This was the moment the Marvel Cinematic Universe took one of our friends, someone we knew and had been the glue for much of this whole journey, and invited us in to share the grief and feel energized by it. Sir. Agent Hill. Those cards. They were in Colson's locker, not in his jacket. They needed the push. Ultimately though, the most important way in which the Avengers explore their characters in a team dynamic is in the final battle, where each Avenger slots nicely into the role that's been set up for them. As we would expect, Captain America takes the natural lead of the team, having already established himself as a strategic thinker and someone who knows how to deploy individual specialists. More interestingly though, there's the fact that everyone just accepts this, even Stark. He fights side by side with his soldiers, but is also the very literal emotional and physical support for them. If you want to get up there, you're going to need a ride. I got a ride. I can use a boost, though. You sure about this? Yeah. It's going to be fun. 
the most part, both Black Widow and Hawkeye are the boots on the ground and the eye in the sky. Each has hand-to-hand combat experience, but has other helpful tricks up their sleeves that make them able to contribute something unique. They both get the chance to show off feats of heroism that would be impossible in the real world, but still manage to serve as a reminder that right here, in the heart of all this madness, there are two somewhat normal human beings with a real existing friendship. Just like Budapest all over again! You and I remember Budapest very differently. Now, obviously, Hulk is the muscle of the Avengers and is deployed as such by Cap. And Hulk. (sighs) Smash. But actually, like most of the other Avengers, he also works very well alongside others and knows what side he's on. And this is a massive departure from Ed Norton's Hulk, and in fact, all other Hulks before him. This Hulk isn't a screaming, frightened baby motivated by a primal binary of rage and love. This Hulk can take orders. He knows who he's fighting, and presumably why, and is able to work as part of that team. He may still be a brute, but in the Avengers, we're already seeing a level of intelligence that will grow more and more in future MCU films. One of the people Hulk works closest with in the climactic battle, of course, though, is Thor. The pair have already faced each other, and there appears to be some sort of weird camaraderie going on between them. And again, this will be developed further and further in movies to come. But while Thor, as a character, is perhaps the most underused of the key Avengers, he's also the one who's made much more interesting through his interactions with others. But the Avenger with the strongest and most enduring actions by the end of the film is without question Tony Stark's Iron Man. Cap may be the strategic leader, someone able to rally the team, assign roles and organise soldiers on the ground, but when it comes to relaying the shape of the battlefield, that sits with Stark. He's the striker to Steve Rogers' central midfielder, or if you prefer, the wide receiver to his quarterback. But outside of all that though, the key thing for Stark here is his selflessness. This, as it turns out, is the guy to make the sacrifice play to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over. And it runs right throughout the sequence, from facing up to a god as a human. Please tell me you're going to appeal to my humanity. Uh, Actually, I'm planning to threaten you. (laughs) You should have left your armor on for that. Yeah. To throwing himself headfirst into the belly of some seemingly impenetrable cosmic beast. Jarvis? You ever hear the tale of Jonah? I wouldn't consider him a role model. And eventually, taking a nuclear missile into a trans-dimensional portal with no guarantee that he'll come back or even live to tell the tale. I got a nuke coming in. It's going to blow in less than a minute. And I know just where to put it. Stark's actions, while never motivated by the need to prove anything to anyone, show the rest of the Avengers that he is a formidable teammate. He might not be the guy that you want to lead, but he's smart, powerful, and absolutely has your back. It strengthens his relationship with Steve Rogers in ways that will prove essential in future films, but more importantly, it contributes to the growth of Tony himself and echoes right through phases two and three of the series. What just happened? Please tell me nobody kissed me. We won. No matter what you think of it, the initial phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is an absolute masterclass in not just blockbuster movie making, franchise building, marketing, merchandising and more, but also characterization. And without good characterization, none of these things hold up. Audiences care about these characters, these people, and that's why they keep coming back. In the films that follow, we'll be introduced to new characters, new teams of disparate and damaged souls. 
We'll laugh with them and cheer them on. We'll feel their losses, mourn their deaths, and celebrate their happy endings. But in all these cases, we'll do that because of the hard work that goes into making us love them, not the masks they wear. Podcast is part of the Pod Syndicate family. For more criminally compelling shows, articles, and conversations, head to wearepodsyndicate.com.